0: Welcome to Sacred Realms. Ah! a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast, for the first time in Season 5. I'm your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Matt Willoughby. Matt, I am pleased to welcome you to this here podcast for yet another season, our fifth It's Incredible to Think We Made It This Far. I mean, did did we ever really think we would make it this far? Because I don't know that I really did. Um, I just, like... I'm so ecstatic that people like us enough to keep listening to the point that uh, we now have five of these babies. And um, this one is one that I think you and I have both been ridiculously excited about since we, like, talked about even doing this podcast. It's... Um, One of the most controversial Zelda games, I think... Um, but one of the most fun, de- in de- our opinion. It depends on how you define controversial. Um, I think in terms of like, is this a good game or a bad game? I think no, there's no controversy about that. Yeah, it's universally <laughs> agreed upon pretty much in, in one direction there. But in terms of like where it stacks up against other Zelda games, the conventions that they share in what ways they're different. Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of controversial in that way. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously, like you said, this is one that we've been excited to tackle for quite a long time. Um a Little apprehensive about just because we knew that it was going to be so incredibly different than other games that we have covered. But you know, we're here, it's time to actually get into it. Matt, what game are we talking about? We are talking about Breath of the Wild, the the Origin of Zelda, Breath of the Wild, d- d- the Origin of Zelda, indeed. Yes, it is, that one. Yes, so yeah, obviously a megaton game. I mean, um truly one of the most uh, groundbreaking games of this current generation uh, was released simultaneously on the Wii U and the Nintendo switch. It's just about four years old at this point. And to say that uh, this game kind of like shook up the entire landscape of gaming and game design in its wake would be an understatement. So many games have kind of evolved and borrowed so many conventions that were established in breath of the wild. I mean that like truly to, to create, Create a list of things that um, have kind of become standard in the realm of open world, third person action games since this game released um, that are inspired by things that happen in Breath of the Wild. That list would be so incredibly long. I mean, yeah, I mean, just even even the fact that there are at least at this point I can count on like one hand the number of games that are literally like copied the the intro portion or even like the the box art of Breath of the Wild, like Halo Infinite. The box art for Halo Infinite is literally just a rip off of Breath of the Wild. Uh, This the new Sonic game, the open world Sonic game, the new open world Pokemon game. Well, credit where credit's due on Halo Infinite. I think that that cover art is actually more of like a spiritual reboot of the Halo Combat Evolved cover art than it is anything else. But but you see what I'm saying? Like the framing of so much of the marketing material for these new open world games that didn't used to be open world. Like it's just straight rips off of Breath of the Wild. I mean, I would uh, I would use the more generous term um obviously inspired by <laughs> than ripped off by, but like but yes, I mean that that inspiration is absolutely there. Um yeah, I mean th- this game it's it's um I don't think it's unfair to say that it has penetrated the cultural consciousness and um You know, been transformative in many of the same ways that Breath of the Wild was when or that uh, Ocarina of Time was, excuse me, uh, when that game came out in 1998. I mean, this game really does um, just in terms of impact. it, It is very analogous to Ocarina of Time. In many many ways, I think we can agree on that, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's opening up what is undoubtedly a new era of Zelda, the same way that Ocarina of Time opened up the 3D era of Zelda and moved us into the um, you know one phase, then two phase, you know get the three things, then go get the seven things, and then the you know various the the story driven. The I mean, it, it is exactly the spiritual successor. In many ways, of Ocarina of time in in that way. These are all points that we will dig into and enumerate as we get into this the first episode of season five. Before we get into that, uh, Matt, I mean, how are we? How are we doing here? I mean, it's uh, like obviously um we're recording this episode well in advance of when it's actually going to air um we're in the middle of our hiatus period right now the date as of recording is february 17th and this episode won't be coming out until march 30th um of course if you've been listening to our show you know that we kind of are giving ourselves a generous window of time in which to play this game and then recording episodes kind of as it you know like as it um, as we're able yeah as we're able um so that we don't kill ourselves trying to to bank huge you, chunks week to week, but. Can, so we've already published at this point. Yeah, even at, even even as of February seventeenth, we've already published what is going to be our kind of uh, path and methodology to playing the game. Can you imagine trying to play one section to the next in a week? for for what we've got scheduled out for ourselves like man that's just a lot for some i think you know for some weeks i think that that would actually be very doable and for others it would be hard the thing that is actually going to be the hardest is that you and i have set certain rules for ourselves in terms of what we're going to complete in this game before we beat it and a lot of those are going to rely on just giving us time to explore the map and to find a lot of nooks and crannies and stuff so we'll get into what those rules are when we you know enter into the sacred realms um the Sacred Realms rundown, but uh but yeah, I mean really this is a game that um that really deserves not to be rushed. And so that's kind of you know, we're we're giving ourselves time because we don't want to do that. Um but anyway, I mean I think we're we're both doing pretty good, right, Matt? I mean, we, we're just excited to kind of get into this new season. Um, we've had some bonus content that we've been re-releasing during this hiatus period, in addition to some new bonus content. Um, so we have been keeping busy, but we are, you know, we're entering a new era here. And it's, it's great. Yeah, I'm very excited to play this game. I, I think, as we said, we've been looking forward to it. There's just so much discussion to be had here, given the context of what this podcast's you know mission is, you know, to explore Zelda games one little slice at a time. And then, you know, at the end of all of it, rank them against each other. So I think this is going to be a very fun season. There's just going to be a lot of talk about and we have... Uh, so many guests, both old and new, who have just been clamoring to be um, a part of this discussion with us because there's just so much. And um, I think you guys are in for a really fantastic season. Yeah. Yeah. Before we get into talking about Breath of the Wild specifically, I want to give everybody a recap on where this show has been before now, just in case you're just jumping on the train at this point. So as we said, this is season five, seasons one through four. Seasons one through four were in order Ocarina of Time, Link's Awakening, Skyward Sword and A Link to the Past. All of those episodes are still available on all of our podcast services, Um, and if you are interested in those games and you haven't been keeping up, I encourage you to go back and listen to them at some other time. Uh, They should be pretty much evergreen content, given that they're covering pretty old games. So, yeah, definitely go give uh, those a listen if you haven't before. Of course, at the end of every season, we did a recap episode where we maintained an ongoing ranking of how we... The members of this podcast felt like those titles stacked up against uh, all the others. The ranking as it stands as of this moment is number one, Ocarina of Time, number two, Skyward Sword, number three, Link's Awakening, and number four, A Link to the Past. So that's where we are at at the moment which really if you think about it and as we have said on every recap episode really is um those are really four of the best games that you could possibly like come out of the gate with so saying that link to the past is number four is not a bad thing in any way shape or form because all four of those games are just phenomenal in their own right. yeah yeah we front-loaded um some really excellent <laughs> games in a very big way. So, although I think you could, you could uh, convincingly make an argument, and we have done so in the past, that there are no bad Zelda games. So, you take, you know, take it for what you will. But. At least none of the ones that we've played have been bad. We haven't played all of them, but the ones that we've played haven't been bad. I've played pretty much all of them. And the ones that I haven't played, if I don't enjoy, I'm pretty sure I'm just going to be able to chalk that up to like the age of the games themselves rather than anything else. But you know what? We'll get to uh, the uh, Zelda 2 Adventure of Links when we we get to them (laughs) yeah or the uh spirit tracks which are the ones that i'm most worried about not enjoying but we'll see oh because the stylus yes yeah it's just gonna be a pain yeah i know i'm not necessarily looking forward to that either but yep that's uh (laughs) that will be coming down the pipe sometime that is not right now matt i think it's probably best now that we've gotten that out of the way um that we just get into some housekeeping and then on into the episode because i think uh You know, the tradition is that the opening episodes of a new season are generally pretty beefy because we've got a lot of establishing stuff to cover. And Breath of the Wild has a particularly robust opening section. I would say the best of any game that we have played so far. You're you're skipping ahead to our takes section, Lyndon. Okay, my bad, my bad. But is it fair to say this one's going to be beefy? Oh, absolutely. Okay. This is, shockingly, the longest plot recap we have ever written, and we had some long ones in Skyward Sword, so buckle up for another season of long uh, plot recaps, everybody. Yeah, I think some will be longer than others, but this one is definitely not short. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Not even a little bit. But before we get into that, let's get into some housekeeping. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly re-examination of The Legend of Zelda, one little slice at a time. Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts, hit that subscribe button, and be sure to leave us a review. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. Spotify does now also support star ratings, and we would appreciate some there as well. If you want more Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to patreon.com sacredrealmspod to get access to listener mail, vote on what game we play next, and much more. Additionally, Master Sword patrons and above get acknowledged by name in every episode, starting with this one. Those legendary individuals are Colku, <laughs> Aiden, Rowan, Joshua, Hyrule Podcasters, Keep It Going, Pod, Dante, Jeff, Mary, Brittany, Davy, Haru the Mighty, Derek, Albert, Mark, Andy, Cameron, Tyler, Ben, Daniel, Nick D, Travis. C.S.H., who I believe his first name is just Christian uh, because I've printed off the mailing labels. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Jonathan Max, that's our friend Max Nichols of Bungie. Love that guy. Garrett Drew. And actually, Drew was the last one. Garrett and Drew. Yay! Yay. <laughs> that is all of our Master Sword and Big Gorn Sword patrons as of this moment. We could not make this podcast without you, and we appreciate your support more than you will ever know. I do want to make one final note as we continue on in this recording. Generally, as anyone who listens to this podcast knows, Matt and I, and whatever guests we're joined by, tend to record outside on our back patio. Um, the weather in North Dallas is not acceptable for such an operation tonight. It's cold. Yeah, no, it's uh it's like actually decided to be winter today even though it's almost March. So, thank you Mother Nature for that one. Are you playing My Breath of the Wild save I, over there? I am. I wanted to see what it looked like on the Swoled. Ooh, does the OLED screen make a difference in your estimation? Uh, in my cursory glance, yes. Yeah, that OLED screen is absolutely amazing. If you if you have an older Switch and uh, are even sort of on the fence about upgrading to the SWOLED, which of course refers to the Nintendo Switch OLED model. Um, and you play primarily in handheld because I think that makes a difference. Yeah, yeah that's the only that's really the only time you get uh, benefit yeah. out of. the yeah yeah, 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 if you if you play docked, then yeah, don't upgrade. But if you play exclusively in handheld, which Matt and I, I think both, both do, do. Um, then yeah, that OLED screen upgrade is just is a is damn worth it. The lack of beveling alone is just like really awesome. Yeah, but that color range is, is really awesome. Well, too. For sure. But like I, I think there's like 15 percent more screen area. On yours than on mine. Yeah. It's, like, that's it's, pretty cool. It's noticeable. Anyway, what I was saying is we generally record outside tonight. It's damn cold outside. So we are back in my office. And if there's just a little bit of an echo, just a tad more reverb, maybe uh, you hear a glass getting sat down on a wooden table a little bit more often than is normal. Hey, sorry about that. Um, it's nice and warm, though, which we're not freezing our booties off. Yeah. I mean, the last thing you want to hear is uh, teeth chattering throughout the entirety of the show, right? Oh, you don't absolutely. want that. And you don't want us to be miserable, let's be honest. Yeah. We know that you love us. Well, if we're miserable, then I, th- I feel like that directly, um, that directly results in substandard pod, and I don't mm. want that for our listeners. No one's here for substandard pod. Don't need it. All right. With that said, and without further ado, let's talk about what we played. We do that, of course, every week in the Sacred Realms Rundown. The Sacred Realms Rundown is a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel. I know we thought that we were going to have to make some sweeping changes to this format as we went into Breath of the Wild just because of how different it is from other Zelda games, but I think this is actually pretty darn similar to the Sacred Realms Rundown that um, most people are going to know and love, with a few edits here and there to accommodate for some of the, the major differences, but. But really the format's mostly the same, right? Yeah, I mean, I think you're gonna see some differences on episodes where we're not doing Divine Beasts. We're replacing that with, you know, shrine shrine diving. Um, there's gonna be a little more emphasis on um exploration over side quests, you know, and, and we've got some other episodes dedicated to what we would call like the main side quests. So I mean, there's a little bit of difference here, but um overall I think we're keeping a pretty pretty standard uh rundown like the like the people are used to, and Yeah, absolutely Uh, Part one of the Sacred Realms rundown is, as always, the plot recap as read by Matt Today, of course, we are covering the introductory chapter of Breath of the Wild Which is the entirety of the Great Plateau Um, Man, what an excellent section of the game Matt, are you ready to walk (laughs) us through it? Yes Alright, then without further ado, this is the plot recap as read by Matt Take it away, Matt Darkness. Warmth. Utter relaxation. The sleep is like that of the deepest, most comfortable night we have ever felt. But interspersed in the sleep are dreams. Dreams that we can't ever quite make out, but they're chaotic and dangerous and filled with flashes of red and blue. These dreams have been flitting around the edges of our vision for an unknown length of time, but something feels like it's been an age, but also like it's been no time at all. As we lay in our slumber, light begins to pulse around us. Not the dangerous red and blue of our troubled dreams, but a bright yellow light like the sun, but more pure in a way. A comforting light. And with the light, we hear a voice. The voice is strange, but somehow familiar. Slowly, ever so slowly, we feel the lethargy and the weight begin to lift. And for the first time in an unknown length of ages, we feel the urge to open our eyes. Wake up, Link. I was getting there. You don't want voice acting in no, your No, I don't want voice acting. There may be voice acting in this game, but not in this pod. Rude. <laughs> I thought, I really thought I was just like contributing something here, but no. I don't agree. As we open our eyes, the message of the voice rings in our ear before any other sensation comes to us. Open your eyes. Wake up, Link. And so we did as the voice obeyed. Above us is an odd apparatus that looks like stone interlaced with cool blue light and constellations of stars. As we return to wakefulness, we feel the warmth of the water that enveloped us begin to recede, and life and energy return to our limbs. As we rise, we find ourselves in a dark stone room, but a basin near the door draws our attention. We find an odd tablet-like device with the insignia of an eye upon it, and it responds to us by coming up out of the stone basin, as if wanting us to take it in hand. We do so, and the door in front of us opens of its own accord. In the next room, we find some ancient-looking clothes and moldy crates and barrels, but nothing else. The exit to this odd place is ahead, but we have to use our new tablet, which we are told by the device itself is a Sheikah Slate, to open the great stone door. Uh, there's some pants in there, too. Yeah, clothes. I said clothes. Oh, clothes, said, plural. Okay. Yeah. My, okay. Shirt and pants, yeah. The light and the voice that called us to wakefulness come to us again and say, Link, you are the light, our light, the light that must shine upon Hyrule once again. Now go. And so we move towards the daylight in front of us to see what we can. As we exit, we find ourselves upon a cliff overlooking a lush field of trees, beautiful swaying grass, ponds of clear water, and ancient stone ruins that seem to speak of a dignity long forgotten in its ruination. In the distance sits a great volcano spewing smoke and fire, and in the shadow of the clouds and cliffs there sits a castle. This castle is surrounded by unnatural smoke and light, and it stirs in us a great anxiety and fear that we have no context for. To our right sits the ruins of a once grand temple, and this temple calls out to be explored. With no reason why, we head to this temple. On the way there, we encounter an old man sitting by a fire. After scolding us for stealing his baked apple, the old man tells us that it is very strange to see another living person in this area, a comment that seems very odd at the moment. We ask who he is, and we get a cryptic answer about sparing us his life story and just being an old man that has lived alone up here for quite some time. He does tell us that the place which we find ourselves is called the Great Plateau, and is told to be the the birthplace of the entire kingdom of Hyrule. He also tells us that the temple we are so drawn to used to be the site of many sacred ceremonies, but since the decline of the kingdom over a hundred years ago, it has sat in a state of decay. Following our original instinct, we head for the temple to see what it is that draws us there so strongly. As we approach the Grand Ruin, we see a strange thing scattered throughout the rubble, odd mechanical-looking things with many legs that look to be just as decrepit and forlorn as the temple they surround. A voice calls us toward a pile of rocks south of the temple, but our way is blocked by roving bokoblins and choo-choos. We are able to scavenge rusted weapons from the area around the temple in addition to branches and other objects. After some time, we manage to fight through the wandering enemies, collect the weapons that they drop, and eventually come to another pile of rubble, which turns out to contain a pedestal, much like the one in the shrine in which we awoke. We touch our Sheikah Slate to the pedestal and are greeted by an automated voice, informing us to watch for falling rocks. We aren't left to run to wonder about this warning for long as the ground beneath us begins to shake, and we are raised into the sky on the observation deck of what is revealed to have been a buried tower. In the distance, we can see many other similar towers rising above the surrounding terrain. As the tower upon which we stand comes to a halt, we look back at our Sheikah Slate and see that it now contains detailed geographic data of the Great Plateau. Our attention is diverted from this new marvel by a massive pulse of malevolent energy which surrounds the previously dormant castle in the far distance. It seems that our actions have acted as a catalyst to awaken something ancient and evil. Our next course of action has to be to explore the Great Plateau using our new map, but we have barely reached the base of this tower before the old man approaches us from the sky by way of a very handy-looking paraglider. He asks us about the voice we have been hearing since we awoke and wonders whether we recognize it. He seems disappointed that we answer in the negative, but is impressed by our stated desire to leave the Great Plateau and examine the distant castle ruins. There is just one problem. The plateau is surrounded on all sides by sheer cliffs, which we are currently unable to scale without the fear of certain death. The paraglider which the old man possesses would certainly be of use in this regard, and he agrees to lend it to us in return for a treasure which he says lies inside a nearby, and newly activated, shrine. With no options seemingly left to us, we proceed to the shrine and are carried by an automated elevator to a wondrous subterranean enclosure, which exists in stark contrast to the ruined world on the surface." Seeing a nearby pedestal, we once again employ our Shika Slate and are greeted by a message which states that this is the Oman-Ao Shrine, in which we will be granted a new ability of the Shika Slate and tested in its use by a trial. The ability turns out to be Magnesis, which allows us to use the Shika Slate to move and manipulate metal objects. With this new tool, we are able to progress past a series of metallic obstacles and come finally to a glowing pedestal, upon which sits an ancient and shriveled monk, the field breaks apart at our touch, and the monk stirs from his slumber. He reveals himself to be oman Ao, the protector of the shrine. He reveals that many such shrines exist throughout the realm of Hyrule, with the purpose of testing the hero foretold in legend. oman Ao grants us an ethereal orb, and tasks us to go and bring peace to Hyrule. Without another word, his body vanishes before our eyes, and we are transported back to the surface. We are greeted again by the old man, who is happy to see that we have obtained the treasure from the shrine, though he reneges on his promise to grant us the glider, and instead tasks us to seek out the remaining three shrines on the plateau, before he will deem us worthy to possess this aerial treasure. Using weapons, food, and materials which we scavenge from our surroundings, we embark upon a journey across the remainder of the plateau. Our journey is not easy, and we are challenged by many monsters including bokoblins, winged keese, and even a massive rock monster called a stone talus. We occasionally run into the old man on our travels, and he imparts many wise teachings to us, including telling us how to hunt wild game, how to cook warming dishes of fish and peppers, and many other things. Using all of our grit and determination, we are able to locate the remaining three shines, two of which are located in the frozen foothills of Mount Hylia. Each shrine grants us new abilities, and by the time we have conquered all four, we are able to summon damaging bombs, create blocks of climbable ice, and even freeze objects in time using stasis. We exit the fourth shrine, which is perched on a sheer cliff overlooking the ruined Temple of Time, and are greeted once again by the old man. He commends us for accomplishing this task and says that the glider will be ours once we meet him at the point which is equidistant between all four shrines where they intersect to form an X. Before we can resort before we can retort, the old man disappears in a flash of otherworldly green flame and we are faced with no choice but to acquiesce to his request, not unlike uh Elizabeth Swann, not unlike A consultation of our map reveals the point between all four shrines to be the steeple of the ruined temple which so drew us upon awakening. And after a hike back down the mountainside, we come back to the temple grounds and are able to scale the side of the edifice and arrive inside the steeple where we meet the old man once again, though he appears to be cloaked in green flame. The old man congratulates us on making it this far, and says that the time has come to finally reveal his true nature. A blinding flash envelops him, and when the light has cleared, the ragged old man has been replaced by a regal figure who introduces himself as King Rome high Hyrule, the last monarch of this ruined kingdom. He apologizes for deceiving us, but explains that in his estimation, it was best to give us time to acclimate to our surroundings after being asleep for so long in the shrine of resurrection and seemingly losing all memory of our previous life. He then goes on to tell us the story of how the once great kingdom of Hyrule became what it is today, a smoking ruin of its former self with its people scattered to the winds. He tells us of Calamity Ganon and the story that was passed down from long generations. A story of a hero, a princess, and a mortal enemy. The Calamity was indeed once a man, born into the kingdom of Hyrule, but through a transformation of unknown origin, he became the primal beast that we can see swarming like a cloud over the distant castle. Stories of this mortal enemy were passed down from generation to generation, along with a prophecy. The signs of the resurrection of Calamity Ganon are clear, and the power to oppose it lies beneath the ground. With this prophecy in mind, the people of Hyrule and the Sheikah tribe began to excavate large sections of land, looking for this buried power. Not long after, they discovered machines of powerful technology that far surpassed their current ability to create. Among the vast number of of smaller machines, which they named guardians, were gigantic mechanical animals, which they called divine beasts. These divine beasts could only be piloted by warriors of extreme skill, and so each of the sentient races chose a champion to represent them and pilot one of these beasts. The prophecy also spoke of a princess with an ancient magic, and her chosen knight who would wield the sacred blade that could seal the darkness who sealed away the evil of Calamity Ganon so long ago. Over a century ago, there was a princess who was said to inherit a sacred power, and her chosen knight who wielded the Sword of Legend. With the princess as their commander, the champions and the chosen knight were on the brink of sealing away Ganon when the unthinkable happened. Calamity Ganon reappeared from deep beneath Hyrule Castle and possessed the Guardians and the Divine Beasts alike, wresting them from the champions and using the mechanical army to completely decimate Hyrule's armies and kill its champions. During the fighting, the Chosen Knight was gravely wounded while defending the princess and fell. The princess, however, survived and went to the castle to face Calamity Ganon alone. There she called upon the ancient magic and trapped Calamity Ganon within the bounds of the castle with herself. And there she has resided, suspended by the sealing magic, keeping herself alive and Ganon contained. But her power is now waning, and we must help her. For, King, Bo- King Rome reveals to us, it is we who were the princess's chosen knight over a century ago. We have slept long in the shrine of resurrection to heal from our wounds, but now it is time to take up the mantle and come to the aid of the princess. King Rome asks us, as Zelda's father and as the king, to save Zelda and vanquish the calamity that holds this kingdom in ruin. With our goal ahead and the paraglider in hand, we head to leave the Great Plateau and begin our journey to save Zelda, the kingdom, and maybe along the way... Remember who we are. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. It was beefy. It was wonderful. It contained highs. It contained lows. It took us on a ride. (laughs) We had There were some tears, blood, and sweat all poured into it. We loved it. Part two is, of course, our takes, where we talk about how we felt about this section of the game. And this section is always kind of a catch-all for a lot of different things whenever we do the first episode of a new game. I want to go ahead and ask that we... We defer the conversation about narrative observations for the end of our takes. Does that sound okay to you? Yeah, sure. Like, can we be more general just up front? Sure. Cool. I'm going to go ahead and lead off and say that just generally speaking – I love the f*** out of this game. (laughs) (laughs) I thought thought we were not making generalizations about the game, but just this section of the game, Lyndon. Well, but like we do have to talk about the like, you know, we always have to discuss things like the mechanics, the aesthetic, the art style. Um, You know, there's a lot of Mm -hmm. there's a lot of table setting that has to get established in this introductory episode. And um, and look, here's the deal. I think that I have spent four seasons of this show talking about just how important Breath of the Wild is to me as a player of Zelda and how much much I love it. Um, Even going so far as to say that it's my favorite video game of all time. But I am approaching this playthrough of it with the intention of being as objective as I possibly can be, especially now that we're entering into this period where we're trying to apply critique to... You know, to our previously held conceptions about these things. Yeah. And so that's what I'm trying to do here. And like, I will admit that I'm, I'm finding it very tough to like, there are some things that I can kind of nitpick, you know, but. The things that happen in this intro section of the game, um, stepping out of the Shrine of Resurrection, that initial sweeping view across the Kingdom of Hyrule, and you get the theme that cuts in, Um, you get the logo, (laughs) (laughs) you get the logo that pops up, things like exploring the Great Plateau. I mean, there are so many moments in even in just this introductory section of this game that continue to take my breath away and that astound me and that feel like slipping into a warm bath like it's just it makes such an incredible first impression um how long would you say it took you to beat or to to leave the great plateau uh the first time or this time this time um i would say i probably spent a solid two two and a half hours Okay, I would say, around. yeah, I would say I probably did closer to three or three and a half because I was really just kind of like getting into the nooks and crannies because there's actually more on the Great Plateau than I think you would think there is. Oh, for sure. I mean, like I said, there's like a stone talus on here. A lot of people don't even realize that you can fight one of those on the Great Plateau, mm-hmm. but there is one here. There's a lot of stuff that you can kind of find, uh, especially in master mode. And actually, pump the brakes. Probably should have done this right up front uh well let's do it in a minute let's like let's let's finish our takes because you're on a roll i don't want to i don't want to stop you while you're on a roll okay well then let's 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 state the rules for the playthrough and then i can swap it around in editing maybe but like i feel like it's important that people know what versions each of us are playing how we're playing etc i mean that's true but i okay if you want to okay You're the boss. Okay, so just just as like a kind of a a mission statement for the ways that Matt and I are playing Breath of the Wild, because it is one of those games that can be played in a multitude of ways. You can enforce your own rules upon every different playthrough. Um, You can play through it in either master mode or regular mode. Difficulty is of course altered depending on which one of those you do. Um, Of course, even if you're not imposing rules upon your own playthrough, and you're playing in the same mode every single time, you're never going to play this game identically between two different playthroughs. No, it's, never. It's impossible. So um, here are the rules for this playthrough of Breath of the Wild. Number one is that Matt and I are going to be conquering all 120 shrines. Yes. We will be playing the Champion's Valid DLC. Yes we have each given ourselves a self-imposed rule that we will be adhering to for the entirety of our playthrough. Matt, would you like to say what your self-imposed rule is? Yes. So um, one of the key mechanics in Breath of the Wild is upgrading gear that you get, specifically armor. Um, I have committed to not upgrading gear past a reasonable level for its type. Meaning, once I get the heroes or the... The tunic, uh, champions the tunic. champion's tunic, I cannot upgrade that to its max defense level, which is the highest in the game, because that doesn't make sense for a cloth tunic. Um, I have to keep that right around the first or second level of uh defense upgrade. Whereas and, with the plate armor. Yeah, like the knight's armor, which is straight up like plate mail. Yes, I can definitely do that uh, all the way up to its max. Gotcha. Yeah. So, and that's kind of like, there's some judgment calls to be made there in terms of how much you think something should be upgradable. But for the most part, I think it creates a cool gameplay loop where you have a lot more reasons to bust out your knight's armor. Yep. Um. Then you might in a regular playthrough just because like... You'd wear the champion's tunic the whole time because yeah. it's the best in the game. So why would you not? Yeah, exactly. And I mean, like, if like if you're going to go fight a Lionel or something, then you're thinking, okay, I need to get my, my beefy armor on. Right. And then that gives you a really good, reason to pop out the knight's armor so i think that's a really fun way to play through this game i've done that before and i do highly recommend it honestly i'll probably do something similar on my playthrough um i will probably upgrade the champion's tunic all the way on this one just because i you know it's awesome but like but but i'll probably play somewhat similarly um my self-imposed rule is that i will not be consuming food to regain health during combat at any point During this game. Does that include potions and fairies? Yes, it does. Uh, not fairies because they auto proc whenever you fall in battle and that's kind of their whole purpose. So like, you know, if I do die in the middle of a fight, then yes, I will allow a fairy to revive me. Um, but fairies are kind of few and far between in this game. Yeah, there's not a lot. So that's fine. Um, but yeah, and but I'm talking about like eating meals, you know, just no, like, I, yeah, I know, like chugging like 20 apples in order to regain your health, like in the middle of a fight with a Lionel or something, you know, um, my rule is basically that as long as combat music is playing, because there's a there's a theme that plays as long as you're in combat with an enemy, as long as that music is playing, I will not be consuming health regenerative food or materials or anything like if i need to heal up then i need to withdraw and i'm not doing that by warping either i need to withdraw to a safe distance um eat some food and then try to tackle it from a different direction so props to you i would not do that well, I know. Uh, so good friend of the show, Max Nichols, was kind of entertaining a few different notions of the rules he was going to do on his Twitter feed the other day. Yeah, it was something like no fast travel, like no climbing. No, I was like, dude, absolutely not. Yeah, <laughs> not me ever. Thank you, though. Yeah, I mean, props to you, Max Nichols. But like, I want to have fun playing this game. So. <laughs> but, you know, maybe he enjoys that kind of thing. I mean, I'm, you know, whatever, whatever does it for you, Max. Can't wait to talk about it whenever you come on the show for this game which I'm sure is going to happen sooner rather than later. But anyway, those are the rules for the game uh, as we're playing them. I am playing in master mode. I thought we said we were not going to do that. We said it's dealer's choice. I thought we said no. Okay, well, I'm playing in master mode. Well... Fine, you do that if you cool. want to. Math, I'm not. Matt's not playing in master. Absolutely mode. not. The details uh, or the differences between master and regular mode are that in master mode, um, enemies will regen health if they are not taking damage for a certain amount of time. So, like if you do a bunch of damage to a bokoblin and then you kind of take cover after like four or five seconds, um, that bokoblin's health will start to regen. And in addition to that, in master mode, there are like floating balloon sections scattered around the map that have got um, enemies on them with like bows and arrows, but they've also got chests that have gear and weapons and stuff that are not findable in hero mode. Um, they're kind of tough to get to, and you have to strategize how to get onto them, because if you like, like if the macoblins that are on the platforms notice you, uh, then they'll blow like a horn and then the platforms raise up in the sky and you can't get to them anymore so anywho it's like a fun little challenge but yeah there's there's extra gear that you can get in the opening sections of the game um in master mode and then also there's a freaking silver Lynel on the great plateau in master mode <laughs> yeah good luck killing that with three hearts well and I a branch well I tried and all uh, that go for you we'll talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, those are those are the rules of this Breath of the Wild playthrough. I don't think we missed anything, but feel free to ask questions if if you guys have them. We'll, you know. And we will be doing Trial of the Sword, but it's not required, but both of us are definitely going to do it. That's yeah, we don't have an episode devoted to that like we do to the Champions Ballad, but at some point during our playthrough, we will be doing the Trial of the Sword. So that's a fun and interesting challenge, and uh, we'll probably both end up throwing our switches several times. Definitely. Yeah. Cool. All right. So as I was saying, um, I think that there are so many parts of this introductory section that just feel so, uh, distinct, like it sets such an incredible tone right from go. Um, And I think it just – it has such a confidence about it that – some Zelda games have had, but this Zelda game has got such a unique design sensibility and also it does benefit from being a very modern game. Like even though the Switch is kind of disadvantaged from a power standpoint versus other consoles, it has plenty of power to run this game – and to run it uh, incredibly well, given the uh, design choices and, and and everything that the that the gameplay designers um, decided to put on it. So, yeah, I mean, where where are you kind of at just in terms of like the way that this intro section presents itself and the tone it sets? So, I mean, I think I think that this is the best intro section of any Zelda game ever, like bar none. Easy. Uh, it is fun. It is. It teaches you the core mechanics of the game. It you get four new abilities that you will use to the rest of the game. And that's another really interesting thing about Breath of the Wild is like the way that they have the abilities set up and your the item the item economy is very different than any other Zelda game, which in some ways I hate, (laughs) which we'll talk about. I guarantee a lot. Um, But man, this like it's so good and. It's beautiful like it's mind blowing how good looking this game is every single time I play it. It's um, it's not something I would expect necessarily from a Nintendo game like all things considered like when I think of Nintendo I don't think of like breathtaking uh, graphics and and vistas like I reserve that for mostly you know. Which are three and like you know the the high powered CPU, uh, you know GPU, whatever it is, um, games. But man, it takes cell shading and just the full mile. It's amazing. Well, that's kind of one thing I want to bring up because like you're you're saying that. Nintendo games typically aren't known for this, but the fact of the matter is that the graphic style of this game is cell shading And when you talk about cell shading to people, that usually conjures images of, like, Wind Waker, where it is, right. like, a more flat and more cartoonish and whatnot. This is the same technology— um, kind of pushed to a bit more of a level of detail than is present in Wind Waker. But the fact of the matter is that from a graphic standpoint, especially even from like a resolution standpoint, I mean, this game is like, I think max resolution is 720 or 1080. I forget what resolution it is when you dock it. Um, yeah, I don't I, I, remember. I think it's 1080. It's certainly not 4K and nope. it is not 60 FPS. No, but it still looks so good and it's smooth and it plays well and it's like... There's no I I don't have a detraction on this game for its style in any way. Like the music is amazing. The the graphics, the art direction, the the differences between the regions, the just every single moment that you spend in Hyrule or the Great Plateau in Breath of the Wild feels. Impactful. So, I mean, obviously art style in Zelda games is one of those things that's usually incredibly confidently um, established every single time. Like the the art style and the, the vibe, the tone of a Zelda game is one of those things that always just feels so intentional and always feels so right on the mark for whatever that Zelda game is for the most part. I think that our our favorite whipping boy, Twilight Princess, actually kind of comes to sort of a generic place in some respects there. <laughs> uh... In, in, in that it feels like very generic video game in in, in a few different ways but like course, even, twilight Princess*. but even even that one is good um but but this is another instance of like Skyward Sword had its impressionistic watercolor style Wind Waker had its cartoonish chibi style you know Majora's Mask had this kind of like dark and moody atmosphere that it was presenting and this game has got this ultimate evolution of Studio Ghibli meets the legend of zelda and that's true for the music as well i mean yep. this this music is ghibli as hell uh but like for the for the visuals too um it is just this this serene combination of blues and greens and it is god it is just wonderful that's yeah, gorgeous yeah um so let's go ahead and talk about the music real quick because there's several Amazing pieces of music that pop up just in these first few hours of play. And I think the musical style, we can both agree, is highly different from anything that's been done in a Zelda game previous to now. Um, Zelda games previous to this one were very much about uh, big, grand themes that were kind of played on a loop, you know? Yep, yep. Um, this is ambiance music like this is music that you can put on the background while you're studying or while you're working from home like this. This is music that is variation and is um, atmospheric. This reminds me a lot of like Skyrim style music just from the fact that it's it's very background ambiance music. It's obviously a very different style of, of sure, soundtrack sure. in Skyrim, but like the the. Tone setting and the purpose of the style of soundtrack is the same. It's it is meant to be able to be listened to for hours and hours on end without becoming repetitive or um, obnoxious or you know whatever because it's just mellow and it's it's in the background but it's still beautiful and it's very. Good at what it does. Yeah. I mean, for the, for in a lot of ways, the music kind of gets out of the way. Um, and I, I don't mean that to say that it's like unnoticeable, but like the music is, um, it's, it's very intentionally paced to where it gives, Uh, It gives the player time to breathe like it is it is as much a part of the ambient noise of the atmosphere as like the rustling of like the trees or the sounds of like, you know, enemies scuffling around or whatever. Like it's a it's a part of the ecosystem of sound in this game, Um, and it is not necessarily ever present. It has a very intentional pacing to it. It is, of course, fully orchestrated, although at this point in the game, I believe most of what we're hearing is just like kind of purely piano based. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. Um it's the the themes and the other thing I love about the themes is they they vary between um where you're at in the overworld, what time of day it is, whether it's raining, whether it's sunshine. Like there's a very distinct musical pattern for each of these things that helps set off the tone of the environment in a just Chef's kiss. Mwah. Yeah. Way. So just off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of all the different musical states you can encounter just on the Great Plateau. Of course there is the uh the ambient noise of the Shrine of Resurrection. There is the field music, there's the Sheikah Tower music, mm-hmm. there is near a shrine music, there's inside the shrine music. There's um in cold weather music. Yes. Yes. Because they- we go up to the top of the mountain for the shrine of um well, the uh, I forget what their names are, but the Stasis Shrine and the Cryonis Shrine are both kind of over there. Yep. Um, let's see. What else do we have? Of course, we have the main, the freaking main theme, which, dear God, does any Zelda game um, have a better? Ba-dum, ba-dum, ba-dum. Yeah. Does any Zelda game have a better main theme than this one? Mm. I mean, you, I, I know that you are going to make a case for the Ballad of the Goddess. And I th- think that I agree with you that that's like. A very close runner up Um, but this is better like the, the Breath of the Wild theme I could listen to the Breath of the Wild soundtrack for a longer period of time without interruption than I could the Skyward Sword but I think I like Skyward Sword more I don't know that's so hard that is so hard like man oh they're so they're both so good Uh, And then, of course, there's one of my favorite pieces of music in this entire game, which is the soundtrack that plays when you're in the vicinity of the ruined Temple of Time. And that, of course, is a slowed down and purely piano rendition of The Song of Time. It's just wow. I remember badass. I remember vividly the first time I played Breath of the Wild and you come out onto the Great Plateau. Obviously, that opening sequence of just, you know, the panning and and the Mount Doom. Uh, Hyrule Castle all of the various mountain ranges just like you woo. mean Death Mountain did I say I said Mount Doom didn't I, I got Lord <laughs> of the Rings on the mind I got Lord of the Rings on the mind man <laughs> Death Mountain it must be taken deep, deep into, into the, the heart of Mordor to the fiery chasm from whence it, it came <laughs> one of you must do this one, one does, does not, not simply, simply walk, walk into, into Mordor, Mordor. <laughs> Dang, we are just terrible. Anyway, (laughs) Death Mountain, which is not to be mistaken for Mountain Doom, even though they're very similar in both appearance and function. Other than, you know, not casting a a ring into the depths of Death Mountain, but it's still a freaking volcano. Anyway, all of that to be said, I remember that very vividly, but I remember even more when it pans to the right and you just get the full screen view of the ruined temple of time. And I was like screeching and I'm not going to do the screech cause I want to make anyone's eardrums bleed, but I like screeched out loud and was like, I know what that is. And and this is a theme that I think Breath of the Wild carries through better than any other Zelda game. Is its Easter eggs and callbacks to previous Zelda games? We're going to find each of the Goddess Springs that we see in Skyward Sword. We're going to find Goron Village, which looks in some ways somewhat similar ish if to uh, the Ocarina of Time Goron Village. If it wasn't you know enclosed, um, then we've got obviously the Temple of Time. And um, the for the where the shrine is, um, the shrine of the sky, all of that section, um, which is in Farron Woods or or what was Farron Woods, basically, like you can see some of the ruins of the forest temple from Skyward Sword, like around that um, that goddess statue that's over there. Like there's just so many cool things that happen, um, and Easter eggs and callbacks. I mean, even the statue of Hylia in each of the places that you find it are direct callbacks and to the Skyward Sword statue of Hyrule. Yeah, and to, to your original point, I'm a giant sucker for seeing the Temple of Time. Oh, every time it gets me, in, dude. In, de- in different Zelda games. And like, we have not encountered it in any of the games that we have played since Ocarina of Time, but it does crop up in several different places. And uh, this is one of those where it's just, I was the exact same mm-hmm. as you. The first time I booted up this game and I came around the cliffside down towards where you meet the old man for the first time, the f- the first thing i saw was the temple of time and i was yeah. just like oh my god that yeah. oh god i remember i went and i sat in the temple of time for a solid like 5 minutes just like drinking it in here's, and like here's it- a fun uh, here's a fun tidbit about the way i play these games um whenever i have four spirit orbs and i'm ready to bank them for a stamina do you piece always go back to the or, temple of time yes i always do that at the temple of time it's fair I think that's fair. I will normally go to the one, uh, the giant goddess statue that's in the that's in the cliffs. So, um, the hidden temple, one, yeah, the hidden temple. I gotcha. do normally go to the hidden temple one just because you can literally warp to the shrine. That's 10 feet in front of it. So, yeah. And I get that convenient, but man. I just like, I'll go to the, I'll go to the temple of time for no reason whatsoever. I just no, love I being there. Um, but yeah, you're right. The, this game does have a lot of callbacks to older Zelda games and you find most of those after we get off the great plateau. So we'll talk about that more later, but the temple of time is definitely the big one that we have here. Um, let's talk about some of the elements of gameplay that we have in Breath of the Wild, because we do get into a fair amount of combat, a fair amount of exploration, a fair amount of item management, all kinds of stuff, because here's the deal. We are used to having like a 30 minute introductory period in Zelda games in which, in which we're introduced to the, to the rudimentary mechanics of combat and like, We get some hearts and some rupees, and then we go off to the first dungeon. That's generally the opening section of a Zelda game, right? Generally speaking, yes. Cool. In this one, the Great Plateau, here's what the Great Plateau is. It is the entire game condensed into one tiny landmass that you can spend about four hours exploring. Like, the Great Plateau is a microcosm of the entirety of Breath of the Wild. Yeah, no, that's that's accurate. Yep, I was going to try to find something to dispute about that just for S's and G's, but nope, that's that's accurate. Yeah, um, and, and for that reason, I think that you're right. The Great Plateau is the greatest tutorial section of any Zelda game, uh, and I would actually be willing to say it's the greatest tutorial section of any video game, bar none. I mean, like, I haven't played every single video game, so, you know, whatever, that's kind of a sweeping statement, but, like, I, I just, I think it is so it is so good at teaching you how to play this game in a confined space before everything completely opens up. So, you know what it reminds me of, honestly, and and I say this a lot because this is probably my, one of my top three favorite video games of all time. This reminds me a lot of the Witcher three intro section, which is in white orchard. And it's for exactly the reason that you stated white orchard in the Witcher three is exactly like breath of the wild in the fact that it is a microcosm of everything that you do throughout the rest of the game. And, I think that that is probably my favorite intro section of any of any video game that I have ever played. But that's just because there's more combat based things that are happening. And also, I love the combat of Witcher 3. And I guess this might be a good time to get into it now. I genuinely speaking despise the absolute hell out of item uh, durability and um, the way that that is handled in Breath of the Wild. Um, Item durability exists in The Witcher 3, but you don't break your sword after five hits, unlike how you do in Breath of the Wild. And like that will be something that I know that I will come back to many times throughout the course of this season is I absolutely despise how non-durable your items are in Breath of the Wild and how frequently you are forced to replace swords or bows or shields. And I just like that is something that I genuinely do not like about this game. It's one of the very few things if not like the only thing that I genuinely hate about this game. So uh, obviously talking about combat from like a, a like a more um, eagle's eye standpoint. I love the combat in this game. Yeah, the way that combat works in this game is different than we are used to in a lot of 3D Zelda games. L targeting is a thing, you yep. know, which I, I'm i glad that that's still a thing because it is it is massively helpful in such an open world and fast paced environment where the enemies can like be all around you. Having this the quick switch L targeting is very nice. Yes, L targeting is a thing. So if you, I, I, I don't know, I, I know most of you know this, but just just to like establish it for the purposes of like getting into this game on this podcast for the first time. In Zelda games, we traditionally have got permanently available weapons. We've got our Kokiri sword. We have our Master sword. We've got our Big Goron sword. Whatever. Uh, in this game, you pick up weapons off of enemies that you defeat, or enemies that you, fu- or weapons that you find, like in the world and chests or whatever. And every weapon has got a durability meter, and once it's broken, it's gone. And then you've got to use another weapon that you have in your inventory. The only exception is the Master sword, which we get later and has its own. Spell. Special set of rules. But basically, you're cycling through weapons constantly as you play this game. And also, we have a variety of weapon types. So we've got things that fall into the sword category, which of course is like one handed swords, you know, soldiers. Uh, soldier swords, traveler sword. traveler master swords, sword. knight sword, master sword. But of course, like things like torches and branches and stuff kind of fall into that same animation Bokoblin category. arms, which creepily twitch while you hold them. Yeah. That, you know, uh, Bokob, uh, Boko clubs, that kind of thing. You've got two handed weapons, which you can kind of like, you can't have your shield out to defend with while you're holding them, but you've got like your claymores, your moblin clubs, your Lionel clubs, um, Uh, let's see what axes um, are two-handed. Yeah. All spears and javelins. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no Uh, spears. uh, Yep. You're right. You can handed. you can't have, you can't have your shield out where you're using spears, Uh, but then you've got spears, which are distinct from those. They've got a very long reach. They've got a different kind of attack combination thing that you can do. Um, You've got boomerangs, which are one handed and can be thrown and then caught. Uh, Let's see. What am I, am I, am I missing anything here? One-handed swords, two-handed swords, spears, boomerangs. Um, that's, that's all I can think uh, of. Okay. Then, of course, you've got shields, and shields are kind of distinguished from one another just based on durability more than anything else. One thing that is carried into this game from past Zelda games is that some items are made of wood and are thus vulnerable to fire, fire! And, can, and can be burned, Um uh, the other thing is that anything that's not wood and is metal is vulnerable potentially to being— Strikes of lightning! Yes, <laughs> struck by lightning. If you come across a lightning storm in this game, then uh, any metal pieces of gear that you're wearing can cause you to get zapped. Uh, zapod, which is which is interesting, and then That's unpleasant. Then the the other main component of combat in this game, aside from uh, melee weapons and shields, is bows, and you can get a variety, just as great a variety of bows as you can of melee weapons, um, and you can find them very early. You you get access to the bow and arrow. Probably the earliest in this game that you do of any Zelda game. Yeah, it's like pretty much right out of the gate. Yeah. And it's essential to your combat loop. It's your ranged attack. um, Bows are subject to durability the same way that melee weapons are and also subject to ammo. And let me tell you, arrows are not necessarily the easiest to come by. They're really not. Like I remember like until you get late into the game, arrows are kind of a commodity that you want to keep around. Yes. And like you don't want to be frivolous with your arrows. Yeah. So that's kind of the basics of combat in this game. Durability, uh, you know, we'll come back to that as we get further into the game. Uh, I've got my own thoughts about it, and sometimes I do have kind of like niggling um, reservations about it as a system. But I think that on the Great Plateau, it doesn't bother me that durability exists just because the Great Plateau is all about strategizing what you have, knowing how long you have it for, and then finding things to replace that, and then also relying on tools that are not weapons or bows in order to defeat enemies, things like environmental damage, things like using your runes, your bombs, all that kind of stuff, um, waiting until enemies are asleep and sneak attacking them. I mean, the thing about combat in Breath of the Wild is that can be it can be approached from 8,000 different perspectives, you know? yeah no i absolutely agree and, and like the way that the way that durability functions to make you approach combat intelligently is good um I should, uh we'll talk about it later more but like it's i like combat in breath of the wild the speed the flurry rushes the perfect parries all of that stuff combined together um i, I just I'd yeah really like and i actually i want to get into like the flurry rushes and the parrying and everything um on the next episode, because the shrine in Kakariko Village is like specifically tailored to teaching those. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, but but anyway, so there are combat you know mechanics aside from just swing your sword. Uh, you can also freely jump in Breath of the Wild, which is great. Also new. Also new, also new besides freely jumping, is the ability to climb anything. Ah, oh, that is just so much fun. You've got a stamina wheel, and basically, if it is a hard surface that you can run up to, then you are able to freely climb it. The exception is the surfaces and walls in Shrines, shrines. yeah. Which you cannot climb for obvious, like, puzzle-solving reasons, but, yeah. like— in the overworld, you can climb just about anything unless it's raining and the surface is slippery. And then I mean, you, you can still climb, climb it, but you're going to slide down it the yeah. whole time. And your stamina wheel depletes as you climb. And, of course, your stamina wheel is upgradable. So by the time you beat the game, you have got like three full stamina wheels. Speaking of, do you upgrade your stamina wheel first or your hearts first? Stamina, every time. Every time, I always upgrade stamina until I get to a point when I can get 13 hearts. And that's when I go exchange them so I can go get the master sword. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if I still only have three hearts by the time I get to the first divine beast. I I think I'll probably will as well, just because the stamina wheel is so much more useful, especially early in the game. When you have low um, quality armor anyway, you basically are getting one hit by enemies. If you have between three to five hearts. So like, there's not much of a point in my opinion, I'd much rather upgrade my stamina wheel and, and have an easier time getting around um, and being a little more careful in combat, personally. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Let's talk briefly about things like weather, um, health regeneration. Food effects and that kind of thing, because on the Great Plateau, we're introduced to all these new mechanics. Of course, you can find a lot of uh, food materials throughout the world, things like apples. You can hunt wild game and get meat. You can combine those ingredients at cook fires and create meals that give you more hearts than if you just ate the ingredients raw by themselves. But one of the things I love about the Great Plateau is that you've got to go up the mountain to get two of these shrines. Yep. And that involves going into a freezing environment. And if you go into a freezing environment without adequate protection, then you lose hearts, you know, over a certain period of time and will eventually die. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's really interesting. They basically introduced a common survival game mechanic into an adventure game. And they did it really well because they not only gave you the ability to easily see when you're in danger because you've got your temperature thing on the... Right side. Ooh, bottom, so that bottom, that, that bottom brings left. up a thing, though. I play in, uh, I, I forget what the name is, but like minimal UI mode. Oh, no, I don't do where, where the only things I see are my hearts and like, actually, I think it's just my hearts. <laughs> Why do you do that to yourself? Because all the other UI crap just gets in the way of this beautiful ass game. I disagree. I think there's still more than enough. Anyway, not important, but um, the way that they do it is is um, like it's so well done that it's like not Punishing because there are I know you don't play Skyrim, but For any of our listeners that have played Skyrim And have downloaded any of the mods You can have like, so you can download like survival Type mods in Skyrim where The freezing temperatures will hurt you Or just give you debuffs and stuff And like, it's not very obvious in most Cases when that's happening For most games that I have played um, Or like when you're in danger of That happening, the way they do it in Breath of the Wild It's still effective, but not Overly punishing and can can be easily um, can be easily combated in multiple different ways. So, you know, you can put on warmer clothes, you can carry around a lit torch or a flaming weapon that you might get later in the game, or you can uh, eat spicy food that will then increase your resistance to cold. Like the, the amount of the variety of ways in which you can combat the different effects of the weather are really, really good. Um, obviously, I think mm-hmm. the sole exception here being rain, which is always a huge pain in the butt when you're exploring the um, the forest region that which we'll get to fairly soon in the game in our playthrough path. Um, like rain is just a pain. Yeah, That's what it is. Rain is a pain, and that rain is the is truth. The truth. Yes, Um, so I'm looking at my I've got my switch pulled up right now. When you're in pro UI mode, the only thing you see is your hearts. Everything else is removed, including the mini map, the temperature gauge, the clock, uh, all that stuff. My thing is, I don't miss any of those things because I never use the mini map very much. Um, The clock, I only pull up on my Sheikah Slate whenever I want to know what time enemies go to bed. (laughs) you know yeah so i can sneak attack them and then in terms of temperature the game has visual cues that it gives you whenever you pass into an area of extreme temperature like if you pass into a cold area then it's got this little visual thing it does where it's like oh uh you're being damaged by cold now or right by heat or whatever so like all of that other stuff is just extraneous information and so once that's all removed and all i'm seeing is my hearts it, it like it's just a much cleaner interface that's just down it's a preference thing but like i honestly didn't know that exactly Existed, so i might give it a try yeah i think i think it's a really fun way to play this game i don't think you're missing much by subtracting all those extra user interface elements um, but anyway one thing i love about this area we're talking again about the weather effects is that it gives you two potential solutions for tackling mount hylea and surviving the cold actually it gives you like three um there's two simple ones and then one that's really convoluted the two simple ones are that one you can find lots of spicy peppers around you can make them into a meal and you can get uh freezing weather survivability food and that will help you survive up on the mountain the other thing is that there's a little side quest you can do here in which you bring a spicy food meal a specific one to the old man at his hut And if it's the right recipe, then he will give you a warm doublet that you can wear um, that protects you from the cold without needing special food in which to do that and i like it because that really that that kind of teaches you the difference of like okay yes there's multiple ways to handle this you can you can do it by 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 like creating meals and tackling it that way or you can do it by virtue of the clothing that you're wearing either one is fine there's not a preferable option here um the third way is that i don't know if you ever noticed this before but as you're kind of like as you come up from the Temple of Time through the gate that leads up to Mount Hylia and that's where the freezing temperature hits. Yes. There's like unlit campfires the whole way. Yeah. Up there. You could you can light your campfires. I mean, obviously once you get past the, the bridge over the freezing water, there's no more. Yeah. But like, yeah, I mean, you, you can light fires and stand by them and, you know, they keep you warm and then you move to the next one and but it's possible, but. um, But a pain in the ass. Yeah, but getting all the way up to the shrine requires. Yes, yes, yeah. either spicy food or or you're just like eating apples constantly or something. I mean, like, yes. Yeah. But, but, but regardless, you're supposed to find. And um, don't fall in that freezing river or the freezing pond outside the shrine or you'd freaking yeah, die immediately. Yeah, they'll, they'll kill you right off the bat. And just so we're clear, I know in the past I've been like attempting no death runs of things. <laughs> Absolutely not. But like I died, I died a crap ton. Even like I, I'm, I consider myself to be pretty good at this game. And yeah, I died a ton. So I like, didn't die on on the Great Plateau. Not even a single time. No, I died once, like trying to knock over that Bokoblin Skull Camp out by the Temple of Time. I mean, I'm not playing on Master Mode, which definitely makes a big difference. But like, I no, I didn't die yeah I'm, well and so on master mode all enemy types are like bumped up to their next level so there's yeah. no there's no red enemies they're all blue they're all blue or above and so any enemy that was previously red is now blue and any enemy that was previously blue is now brown and so on and so forth so yeah it's like actually kind of tough but yeah i mean yeah i, I died if you i said a crap ton that's overstating things but I, I died a few times on on the great plateau um one, just because like I slipped into said river, you know, <laughs> and immediately died. Yeah, and it was like, well, <laughs> damn. Okay. Um, okay. So that's survivability mechanics. Let's talk about narrative real quick. And then we've really got to move on to I some know, other we're, stuff. We're because, over an like, hour into this because, because, and we haven't even geez, moved on to part three. <laughs> golly. There's just so, there's so much to talk about. There's so much to talk about. Um, okay. Narrative stuff. We have an excellent story that we're being set up here, and as um, an, as an introductory point to every season of Sacred Realms, we try to establish which timeline of Zelda each game is in. This one is kind of difficult because it's very nebulous. Ooh, like I, so I disagree. I think, and I think, I think there is the strongest case to be made that this appears in the child timeline because in one of the memory fragments that we pick up later in the game, Zelda specifically references the Hero of Sky, the Hero of Time, and the Hero of Twilight, which the Hero the Hero of Twilight is the one that indicates that we are in the child timeline, because that is, that is within that time branch. So obviously, the Hero of Sky and the Hero of Time are both before or right at the uh, timeline split, so I think that I think that we can say that this is in the child timeline. Yeah, I I think that that's the safest bet if you're going to call it one way or the other. Either way, this game is so far removed from the shenanigans of like previous games in whatever timeline than most of them are that it doesn't really matter. And also just from a chronology standpoint, I think it's established that this game takes place so far in the future from anything that's happened in the past, like tens of thousands of years. Um, and, and that's evident from square one, just because like, obviously we've got a lot of like fantasy world stuff going on here, but everything that. Is created by the Sheikah, you know the shrines, the Sheikah slate, all of that stuff. It's got like a very fantasy tech vibe to it in a way that Zelda has not really done before this. And there was an interesting point that was made that there are some in- there are some um, parallels between some of the architecture that we see from um, the. Machines and mechanic device, mechanical devices in Skyward Sword from the Time Stones like that, like the, the from, the, from the Lanayru Desert region. Yeah, so yeah. like Lanayru Desert region stuff looks thematically somewhat similar to uh, the Guardians and the Divine Beasts and some of the other uh, technology we're seeing. I'd, I'm i sure that that is purposeful, but not um, not Easter eggy. Like, I don't think they're trying to connect those two necessarily because they're re- they're removed by what we can safely assume to be thousands of years. Yeah. So in terms of the story that we're being told here, obviously, we start off with a very typical spot for Zelda games, which is Link waking up. You know, mm-hmm. this one's like a little bit more intense than normal. Um <laughs> Definitely more intense than normal. He's yeah. not just you know he's not just sleeping in. He's uh, literally been basically yeah. dead. How do you feel about the story that we're presented here? Of course, we get the big dump from King Rome at yeah. the end of this section. So you know, and I feel like I've been fairly vocal about this storyline is really where I get my my kicks in video games in general, especially single player adventure games. Um, and I think the story that is set up in Breath of the Wild is fantastic um, it is very compelling to um, as as a fan of the series I feel like this is a compelling story I, th- I think if this is your first game in the series I don't know that it would be as compelling there's not the emotional investment in the the Zelda as a person and Ganon being bad and all the things There's obviously not the emotional investment in what the Temple of Time means and the the fact that Hyrule is literally in ruins when you're, you know, most other games you're used to it being a mecca of civilization, as it were. So as a fan of the series as as a whole, I I think there's a lot of emotional investment right off the bat um, in this story, and I think it's very well done as we progress through the games. Um, just the very nature of having an open world game like this, the story can feel like it takes a back seat, and like even a third row back seat sometimes. Which is one of my other minor qualms with the game is that it's not is that feeling. But from the beginning, the King Rome story dump, even just the the hints and the general vibe that you get as the game begins. I think is well done and, and epic in scale and yet personal and mm-hmm. um, moving. So we're introduced up front to the three main components of any most Zelda stories, which is our three main characters, Link, Zelda, and Ganon, right? right. Uh, we are introduced, obviously, to Link in terms of, like, that's who we're playing as, but we are given some upfront, um, material to work with in terms of Zelda. And I think even though we haven't met her physically and won't for most of this game, uh, we're, we're given a Zelda who is, like, a driving force of this plot. Like, Zelda is the one that we're trying to rescue and not in terms of, like, her having been kidnapped by Ganon or anything, but she is doing everything that she can to contain Calamity Ganon within Hyrule Castle. She's using her sealing magic and the amount of time with which she can do that is coming to a close and that's the impetus for like driving us forward. But even in these early cutscenes, we're given an impression of Zelda as a character of action. Yeah. Who like when Link fell, went to face Ganon alone. By herself. She didn't just sit around and wait for someone to save her. She went and did something about it. And this was our main complaint. uh, One of our main complaints about some of our Earlier chronological earlier Zelda games, right? Like even Ocarina of Time Zelda doesn't have a great story, but like Skyward Sword Zelda and Breath of the Wild Zelda are like powerful characters by themselves. They don't, they don't need Link, right? Like in some ways they do, but they don't need Link to be a character of worth. There, in so many other Zelda games, that like Zelda is a plot piece that means almost nothing, but Breath of the Wild Zelda is a powerful impetus for our call to adventure yes. and also a, a powerful person and being mm-hmm. in and of herself, yeah. which is really awesome. Yep. Uh, moving on from Zelda, we've got calamity Ganon, which is, it's so fun coming off of this game after having played skyward sword, because this version of Ganon is completely removed from any physical embodiment of the character yep. whatsoever. It, like it, it's the, Not personification is the wrong word, but it is like the pure essence of Demise's curse. Yes. Like without a corporeal body. And like, that's cool, in my opinion. And I think so. I know Max actually expressed some uh, some upset with the fact that they turned the Link Ganon Zelda thing into like this this thing that's passed down and demise's curse being like a preordained thing. I, I remember that Twitter thread vaguely from back when we first started playing Skyward Sword. Max has so many good Zelda Twitter threads it's hard to, to like remember yeah. them all. But I, I do remember that one distinctly of he, he was upset that they turned or not upset, but he he did not enjoy or or like the way that they turned the the reincarnation of Ganon as the enemy into some preordained curse. And I think I think the reason they did that was. For Calamity Ganon, because they knew they needed to switch up the the formula of Zelda, they tried it with Skyward Sword by making it much more linear and much more dungeon focused. And I think even in Skyward Sword, they had an idea of what they wanted out of Breath of the Wild. And I think they were go- they already knew they were going for a more nebulous, more open world, more free form kind of thing. And they needed a different type of enemy. They needed not necessarily your big bad sitting in uh sitting on a throne. They needed something that encompassed a more. Presence of evil and the by embodying Ganon as Demise's curse, it allowed them to move to Calamity Ganon, which is just the curse itself. Yeah, it, it is a, a characterization that is completely devoid of personhood. Yep. Like it. All it is is a, a force, a malevolent force. Um The dark side. And, and yeah. And like and it, it's even stated by King Rome here that it's something that recurs Age after age after age. And even if you defeat it, it will just kind of like seep back into the world. Uh, yeah Time after time. And so I I love this characterization of Ganon because like, yes, it doesn't have a lot of nuance as a character, but also it doesn't need to because right. it's it's like it just it is what it is. It's 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 no more like targeted than a hurricane. Just bad. It's, it yeah. is just evil and it exists and it has... And it has taken over and destroyed that which is good, and now we have to bring balance back to the force. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's really like really that's what that's what we're doing is is we're bringing balance back to the world. Of mm-hmm. it, it has gone through a period of turmoil and destruction, and it is our job to go fix that. Yep. One last thing before we move on, because, I mean, really, we we gain access to four of our main abilities for the game here on the Great Plateau. We continue to use Cryonis, Bombs, Magnesis, and Stasis for the entire rest of the game. Do you feel like this is a really nice way to tackle a lot of frequent utility things that we normally get through like dungeon items and Zelda games. Just yeah. I actually, I actually do really like the, the change up to the formula here. Cause right. Cause every Zelda game, literally every single Zelda game before this one was go to a dungeon, get an item, use the, use the item throughout the rest of the game to, to do various things. And like, instead of doing that, we just front load it and say, now you have all the things that you could theoretically get that are, you know, not, not, other weapons or armor or whatever like you have your main toolkit go do whatever you want wherever you want and like it's very well done and i like the i like the change up to the formula and like we've said at the beginning of the episode and many other times throughout so far is they are intentionally driving a new type of zelda game whether you agree with it or not whether you like it or not they're driving a new type of zelda game here they're 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 reformatting our normal formula to breathe some life and and some different just some difference into it. And I this is one section that I really do think they succeeded unequivocally um, is is these um, these four abilities that you carry throughout the game that you use consistently. I mean, it's just so incredible to say that, like, oh, hey, uh, you'll never run out of bombs. that is really fun and like there are different types like you've got your square bomb which you can just set around or you have got your circle bomb which you can roll down the hill like gently and quietly like yeah and and the the various uses you can put your different abilities to like man i've seen some people on youtube do absolutely insane things with these abilities like just stasis stasis in particular yeah it's insane like, there are, there are people who can, like, chop down a tree on the Great Plateau, hit it with stasis a few times, and then get it to sail them all the way directly into Calamity Ganon's final boss chamber and just, like, beat the game. So Yeah, I don't know how they do that, but good on y'all. Um, the re- Well, the, the answer is that Breath of the Wild has got such an airtight engine. Like, the sandbox that you're playing with in terms of, like, physics, the way the items interact with one another. It's by far the best physics engine of any game I've ever played. Everything that you think should work in this game works. Yeah. Like, if you, uh, jeez, I, I, I don't know. Like, if you want to drop a piece of meat in a cold environment, it will freeze. It freezes. Like, you know, if you want to try and chain together six metal swords and then hit them with electricity to stun an enemy, then you can do that. Like, so if, tell if me, Lyndon, follow up question to this. So wild. Have you ever encountered a glitch in Breath of the Wild? No. I haven't either. We have collectively be we have collectively put what two hundred hours in the game between us. Yeah, dude, I've played this game f- about three hundred hours by myself. So we've collectively put five hundred hours into this game, and neither of us have ever found a single glitch. Like, man, Bethesda, take some notes, because like this is this game is amazing, airtight, like, just airtight from an engine standpoint is mind-blowingly good it's it's a it's a it's a rubik's it's a crazy rubik's cube it's a it's, sorry not Rub, not even a rubik's cube it's nope. a swiss watch there you go of a game every single cog clicks into place exactly the way that it seems like it should and the way that it needs to at all times and i can't understate just how impressive it is mm-hmm. it's a staggering achievement in game design mm-hmm and you feel that. You feel that in every single encounter, be it combat, environment, whatever. Everything just works exactly the way that you expect it to work every time. And it's marvelous. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We have, I think, tackled all of the takes that we can. And we haven't even covered any of the four shrines. OK, so let's go ahead and move on into part three, which is shrine diving. Y'all we just talk- got an hour of our takes. Yeah, I mean, but, but how can you—you you, you cannot shortchange any of this. And I feel— no, for sure. I feel like we spent an hour on it, and we still left shit Oh, out. no, we totally could have probably gone on for another hour at least, but we need to move this train along a little yeah, bit. Yeah, okay. So part three is shrine diving, where we talk about excellence in shrine design. Of course, in weeks where we are uh, tackling a divine beast, this will revert to the dungeon map. But in weeks where we are not— we will talk about what our favorite shrine experience was because there's 120 shrines in this game um, and we do only have four here on the Great Plateau. But we're still going to talk about the ones that we thought were the best. I do want to have a note about shrines in general before we get into this. I think that there's such an interesting mechanic for Zelda games. And this is one of the most divisive things about Breath of the Wild is its substitution of traditional dungeons for these bite-sized shrine experiences, which are just kind of little puzzle boxes that uh, you solve one at a time with the exception of the ones that are combat challenges I love the combat challenges oh yeah they're a lot of fun but I think a lot of the shrines in this game are very cleverly designed to kind of test you in the same way that I think like chambers in portal are that's fair I think I actually think it's a fantastic analogy Yeah. So uh, like each one has a specific solution, but you can also kind of break them in a lot of ways. These early ones, that's a little harder to do. But as we get further on, there tend to be multiple ways that you can tackle a shrine. Um, But anyway, a shrine in Breath of the Wild is a bite-sized dungeon, is the best way that I can kind of describe it. And I don't know that I think that I prefer this solution over having dungeon dungeons. In fact, I miss traditional dungeons quite a lot in this game. That's probably my biggest gripe about it. And we'll talk about that later, but I do think that shrines in and of themselves in a vacuum shrines are a cool thing. What do you think? I think in a vacuum shrines are awesome. No doubt. Um, I will never. And this is, this is my, as much as I dislike item durability, this is my primary complaint about breath of the wild as it pertains to whether or not it's a good Zelda game. Not not a good game. I will never, ever let anybody tell me that Breath of the Wild's not a good game because it's an amazing game. The argument can be made and has been made that it's not a good Zelda game. Which we will get into throughout the course of the season, and I don't want to spend too much time on here. So this is your uh, cue to tune in for the rest of the season, as well as our recap episode. Um, shrines as a microcosm are very good i very much enjoy them 120 of them is a little much some of them are very hard to find which is you know just kind of whatever they are and i think what we'll find is that at least my experience every time i played this game is that the good shrines are kind of front-loaded a for little sure bit. yeah I, there are there are a lot of shrines that you come upon that are like i've eh, been there done that i'm just kind of like whatever um but when you come across a good shrine Like, you know, you have you've come across a good shrine and it is a fun experience and it is it is something special and something that you savor. There are shrines that I really don't like, uh, specifically the ones that are the uh, the Twin Peak shrines or whatever, where you have to like go to each one to figure out the pattern and then like swing back around. Like that one's just kind of annoys Ooh, me. I'm gonna it's talk like, about those next week. It's because... like needlessly complex that I just like, <laughs> don't particularly enjoy it. Yeah, we'll talk about those next week. Yeah, for sure. But anyway, um, no shrines is a microcosm. Very good. Not a subs- Not a satisfactory substitution for traditional dungeons in my opinion so my award for excellence in shrine design on the great plateau goes to a good question yeah what is it uh it goes to the keh namut shrine which is the one where you obtain cryonis and it's so it's so weird because cryonis is probably the least useful rune by far that you get on the great plateau like generally speaking you use magnesis stasis and bombs way more often with bombs being like the big one like you use bombs all the time for sure bombs the most used magnesis definitely the second i, I would say i don't per- stasis, stasis second once you upgrade it i i don't really use it in like combat i've never dude really i mean again the difference between master mode and not master mode um i don't feel the need to use stasis in non-master mode combat personally okay so regardless uh cryonis is mostly only useful for world traversal yep in breath of the wild and even then like you really don't use it all that much but in this shrine it's really cool because there's some interesting puzzles that you kind of have to solve that introduce you to the way that an action results in a reaction in the environment in this game Um, the big one that comes to mind is like so you come across a gate that there's like not a switch to open. There's not a lever you need to pull. There's nothing like that. You can't figure out how to open this gate. But sooner rather than later, you realize that there's water underneath the gate. If you use a Cryonis block under the gate, then it pushes the gate up. And it's such a cool thing. Like it's such a it's such a neat use of The world of Breath of the Wild, it's like you've got to pay attention to your environment enough to notice when something like that will result in getting you um, through a puzzle. And then later in the dungeon, there's like a little uh, seesaw deal, and you've got to use cryonis blocks to like raise one end so you can walk up it to get to the end of the shrine. And I don't know. I just I, th- I think it's really clever. And it's this it's this really fun way of teaching you how things work. And it's very different from anything that we've had in a, a Zelda game previously. Yeah, I think my favorite one probably has to go to man. I'm actually having a kind of a hard time between bomb and stasis because the thing I like about each of these. So I'm going to I'm going to talk about the thing I like. And while I'm talking about them, maybe I'll figure out which one I like more. So the bomb shrine would be the oh man Owl. Uh, no, the bomb shrine is uh jabaish you're right you're right sorry and omana is uh magnesis yes and stasis is the Owa Daim shrine yeah so the bomb shrine i really really like when shrines incorporate the um the the things that shoot you long distances or shoot bombs long distances. they have to figure out like where to put things so that they shoot across to the right place and then like go get it and like the whole what is that called, Lyndon? Um it's like a man cannon kind of deal. Yeah, well I like that. We'll call it man cannon. I like the man cannon shrines. I think they're really cool. Um I, I think they're fun. The thing I like about the stasis shrine is that it's you you utilize stasis in its two primary things, which is not only to stop time but also to um stasis an object and then imbue it with um uh t- Impetus is not the right word. kinetic. No energy. No, it's momentum. Uh, yeah, sure, momentum is good enough. There's there was a different word that I'm looking for. It's a physics term. Velocity. No, David will kill me whenever I talk. To, whenever I ask him what the word is, doesn't matter. Anyway, you freeze the object and you hit it a bunch of times and it goes a certain direction. So this, I think, the stasis shrine is one that really teaches you the most how to use one of the most versatile of the functions where you're not only freezing things that are in motion, but you're also allowing things to move um, when, when they've been stationary. And so I think I think that one's very well designed. Also, uh, there's some chests in the Stasis Shrine that you can get if you're smart and clever and patient. And uh, I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, the Stasis Shrine actually kind of gives you a hammer which it's implied that you're supposed to use that to like clear items yeah. out of the way with stasis. But momentum, also, momentum. There you go. Uh, but also, if you're smart, hang on to that hammer because here's the thing: the game doesn't just tell you. Uh, if you want to break apart rocks to get like ore, or ro- um, or wooden crates or wooden barrels or anything that you can like crush. Well, actually, so the, I use the I use the woodman's axe for those. But like, yeah, so that's the deal. So if you have if you have a hammer its durability goes down at a far slower rate against ore than like using a sword or something. Using a sword against ore to like get rocks and stuff out of it, that'll break your sword right off the bat. Yeah, but like the hammer can do it all day. And then the axe, the various axes can chop apart um, wooden boxes and stuff way easier than swords can. Also, the the hammer is the best weapon to use against a stone talus. Oh, yeah. By far. Yeah, yeah. No question about it. Um, the stone talus's weak point is an ore-looking protrusion on its back, and the hammer will do big damage to that. So, yeah, save your hammers. Always try to have a hammer and an axe at any Always. given point. And anytime you need to chop down a tree or break a wooden box, use the axe. Anytime you need to break stone or kill a stone talus, and use if you, the hammer. if you don't have an axe or a hammer, use a bomb instead of your... Um, instead of your weapons. Yeah, never use a sword. You never, like to ever chop down use, a tree No, you'd never use a sword to chop down a tree or break a rock. Like, come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so if you, like, you know, um, bow and arrow to your head, you had to pick between stasis and bombs, which it would it be? Stasis. Okay. And, and again, for the record, that is the Owadayim shrine. That sounds like Muaddib. <laughs> Muaddib! I don't want to wake your son up. I'm sorry. It <laughs> oh, was God. a little loud. <laughs> <laughs> Shaihuludh. <dude. laughs> Praise the Spice. Oh, gosh. Uh, oh, we I do love a lot of movie. deep cuts here. Gosh. We do a lot of deep cuts on this podcast. Dune isn't a deep cut anymore. Everyone watched that movie. Well, okay, that's fair. It was a phenomenal movie. Yeah, the movie rocks. I'm going to watch it again now. Yeah, Doom. I can't believe we only watched it once. What's wrong with us? I don't know. Dune was awesome. Okay. We should uh, watch it at family dinner on Sunday. Ooh, that sounds great. Okay, let's get into part four, which is Bloopy Trails. Yay, yeah, we changed this one. Yeah, this is typically side quests, but, and like sometimes these will be side quests in Breath of the Wild. But with Bloopy Trails, we are just going to devote our attention to something that diverted our attention. Um, yeah. And so, I mean, what would that be for you on the Great Plateau? Man, I spent so much time exploring the Great Plateau. The first time I played this game, I just like basically went to the four shrines, got the thing and jumped off. This time I was like, I really want to see everything that the Great Plateau has to offer. I tried to find every nook and cranny that I could. There's no stone talus on regular mode, so I didn't have to fight a stone talus. Anymore. Yes, there is. Then I didn't find it, and now I'm mad because I'm going to have to go back and find it. Where is it? Um, Hold on. It doesn't matter. I'll find it later. Anyway, I explored a lot. Apparently not everything. Uh, I went through the whole woods area and just like exploring, hunted some wild boar, uh, killed some birdos, um, cooked the thing for the old man so I could get the, the doublet. Um, I did that as well. Man, I just like... You could spend so much time just, like, hanging out on the Great Plateau. If you were... (laughs) Oh, man. Can I say this? Sure. If you, like, take a a good edible, you could spend (laughs) so much time on the Great Plateau just freaking chilling. So, the Stone Talus on the Great Plateau is in the northeast of the plateau, and it is between... The Forest of Spirits and Hopper Pond. It's in there somewhere. Okay. I killed all of the uh, Guardians, and um, I was so proud of myself that I texted you when I did it. I haven't played Breath of the Wild in probably a year or more. Hey, let's talk about this in Z-targeting. Oh, fine. Because I'm going to get into it. Fine. Okay. Um, So yeah, I spent so much time exploring and just generally enjoying the atmosphere of the Great Plateau and everything that it had to offer. I found a bunch of really cool items like there's that cave behind the waterfall in the frozen section. uh, Went over there. I used a little sailing boat to get across the river because I'd never done that before. Um, Yeah, I just like... I spent a lot of time just kind of chilling and being one with nature. So I did all those same things that you did. And I mean, look, if Shigeru Miyamoto said that Zelda is a series about hiking, then Breath of the Wild is definitely a game about hiking because Mm -hmm. half of your time spent in this game is just kind of like meandering and finding crap. Yeah, absolutely. It's awesome. Um, So I did all those same things you did. In addition to that on Master Mode, I spent a lot of time trying to get onto those floating platforms to get better gear. One of those things that you can do is you can get the Knight's Claymore. Ooh. Which is which is a double-handed sword that's good for like 35 damage. Yeah, dude, that's a that's a by, BA sword. Yeah, by far the highest damage that you can get off of the Great Plateau. My main bloopy trail was that I spent two hours trying to beat the Silver Lionel. And uh that sounds like a miserable way to spend two hours. And I got so close so many times. Because here's the deal. If you have got about 50 arrows and you have got a sword of sufficient attack power, and one or two shields, you can beat a Lionel as long as you know when to parry, when to dodge, and when to hit it in the face with an arrow. Here's bam right in the face. Here's the trick to beating a Lionel: if you shoot it in the face with an arrow, it will stun it, and then you can mount the Lionel and hit it with your sword a bunch of times until it kicks you off. None of that does any damage to you, and. It doesn't take any durability away from your sword if you hit the Lynel while you're on its back. Yeah, because you, you're sitting there smacking it with the pommel of your weapon. Yes. If you dodge the lionel and do a flurry rush, then your sword will take durability damage. Sometimes you just have to do that. But anyway, so so here's the problem. I fought this lionel three or four times and got so close to beating it. I'm talking about like a sliver of health. Um, got all my parries right. Got all my dodges right. Everything. But... What happened was I would spend so long fighting this Lionel that the game would do an autosave in the middle of the fight, and if I, <laughs> and if, I if I died. When I came back, what would happen is like, yes, I would be outside of the sphere of combat. Like I could run away if I wanted to. Right. But the game was deducting the arrows that I had used in my previous attempt. Oh, that sucks. So like I couldn't actually beat it because I checked my inventory. You ran out of arrows? (laughs) Yeah, I I checked my inventory on like the fourth time and was like, why do I only have five arrows? So that was a huge drag. Yeah, no, that's fair. I will at some future point be revisiting the silver line along the great plateau and show him what's what. I absolutely believe in you. <laughs> but yeah, I spent a lot of time on that. Let's move on to part five, which is Z targeting where we lock on two fascinating characters or enemies that we happen to cross. I'm actually going to go with the ruined guardians as an enemy. <sighs> because you run into a few, especially over by the bomb shrine and the, in the Abbey section. It's on the, uh, uh what is this? it's on the like the eastern edge of the plateau and uh there are several guardians that that like they can't move around they just stick nah, it out of the they're, ground. they're the ones that are stuck at out there yeah yeah, yeah yeah they're the ones that you can kill with one deflected sword uh shield yes. bash instead of three yes so obviously you're gonna find much scarier versions of these enemies later in the game but these guys uh you can, with a shield parry, as long as you parry at the perfect time after they shoot their laser, you can deflect it back at them. It kills them in one hit. But the first time that I ever played this game, these dudes were terrifying because oh, I didn't, for sure. I didn't know any of that. So nope. I'm just sitting here trying to, like, throw bombs and shoot arrows and hit them with a sword. And it just took a million years to kill these dudes sticking out of the ground. Um And I I just, I don't know. I think there's such a fun preview of, like, what you're going to fight later in the game. Guardians are one of the scariest enemies that's ever been devised in a video game. There's uh, nothing more terrifying than just kind of running around through Hyrule Field, and the uh, piano starts going... It's like, oh, God, where is it? Where is it? Where is it? And then you see the, you know, it's like the sniper uh, red dot site just like on yourself. And you're like, OK, shit, run away. Yeah, no, I agree. z targeting, Matt. Who you got? Uh, King Rome Bas Faramas Hyrule. He's the good pick. He's a good pick. Um, I was going to do Guardians because I wanted to say how proud of myself I was that after over a year of not playing Breath of the Wild, I was able to perfectly parry the Guardian on my first try. Uh, I did not. I was not successful the second time, but the first time I was. So, uh, thank you for stealing that from me. And I (laughs) am just like plugging myself there for being proud of myself, but King Bosforamus, uh, Rome, Bosforamus, Hyrule, uh, dude has the most magnificent, magnificent Santa beard I've ever seen. Um, also you find out later throughout the course of like the memories that he was a pretty terrible father. Um, but, I mean, dude's pretty, like, regal, all things considered. Very kingly. Um, Also, one of the better story dumps that we've ever gotten in a Zelda game. Um, I think Skyward Sword has a couple uh, story dumps that are equivalent, at least. Um, But, man. Yeah, he's he's a... It's good. Just pretty, pretty cool. Pretty cool character and really cool. Like just spending time with a king of Hyrule. Like oh, for sure. Like how, how, how many other games do we actually meet the king of Hyrule? Uh, it's, uh Wind Waker. Yes. Yeah, mostly Wind Waker. Yeah. Wind Waker. And then this one. Yeah. Like, that's pretty much it. So, and and like, I love how they dope. stuck with, the, like, an, a similar naming convention. So, like, in Wind Waker, it's, uh, it's King Daphnis High yeah. Hyrule. Like, very long and complicated yeah, for and, no reason. And yeah, in this one, it's rome High Hyrule. But anyway, I, I love that kind of connection there. But yeah, so King Rome is obviously a really cool character, and I love the rollout you know, him starting off as the old man and then rolling into this other character, which obviously the old man is a callback to many other Zelda games where you have got the old man that helps you start out on your journey. So we will not only get that callback to other Zelda games, but then that translates into a new uh, character and um, broader characterization of the king, which, you know, I think is really cool. It's, it's very well done. So let's get into part six, which is our final thoughts. Matt, you want to you wrap up the Great Plateau as succinctly as you possibly can? Which... I, I mean, absolutely 10 out of 10. Like, it is the absolute best um, intro section of any Zelda game, potentially any video game ever. Uh, it introduces you to just so many groundbreaking, breathtaking mechanics, um... I have a hard time finding a bad thing about this section of game outside of my general gripes with um, Breath of the Wild in general. It's it's phenomenal. Um, it is, it's the most fun way to spend two-ish hours in a new video game that I can think of. Did playing The Great Plateau get you hyped out of your mind to play the rest of this game? It absolutely did. And the only... So as of February 17th when we're recording this, it's been probably... 2 or 3 weeks since I played Great Plateau and the only reason is because I'm at the very end of my Mass Effect 3 playthrough right now and I am dedicated to finishing that before I pour the rest of my energy into um Breath of the Wild and like that's the only thing that's holding me back and I'm just like very ready to finish Mass Effect 3 and then jump straight mm-hmm. into Breath of the Wild and just like Dive in, and yeah. I'm so excited. So I've done Great Plateau, and then I've also finished the next episode, which is the journey to Kakariko. Yeah, so. uh, that's obviously our next step, and I'm very excited to to get into it and to mm-hmm. play it. Uh, get some more weapons, get some more armor, and uh, yeah, just it's. Definitely, I, I can't wait to. I cannot wait to sink my teeth back into this game. I've only played it through twice: once in normal, once in master mode. Master mode was a little bit more difficult than I necessarily enjoy out of a video game, so I think I, I'm very excited to be playing this back on regular mode so that I can just enjoy it for what it is and just really uh, have a good time with this game. Yeah, and uh, again, go to our Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod. Or Twitter at the same handle and uh, check out our schedule for the episode order that we're doing because we could like you can play this game in a lot of different orders and we have a specific one that we're doing, but we think it's going to be a pretty fun one. Fun fact. Uh, geographically we have a very like straightforward path around the map that we're doing a little bit of trivia here. If you lay the overworld map of breath of the wild over the overworld map for a link to the past, the other game we played most recently, they line up almost perfectly. <laughs> All the important parts line up. Death mountain is in the Northeast corner. Zora's domain is in the middle East. Um, Lake Hylia is in the lower East The castle is in the central. The uh, desert is in the lower west. The forest is kind of in the northern center. Um, all, all everything lines up the exact way that it is in the link to the past map. The only difference is that uh, the forest, instead of being in the northwest, is kind of in the northern center. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is because the they, forest is northwest in link to the past, and it's yes, straight north center. The reason for that is that uh, the Hebra region is not present in a link to the past. Right. So they kind of like shifted the forest over a smidgen. But if you like, if you look at a link to the past's map and imagine that the Hebra mountain range is over there. Mm-hmm. At all, like, but the Hebra range does not exist in a link to the past, so interesting, yeah. Otherwise, the maps line up weirdly, perfectly. It's really cool, yeah. Okay, that has been the Sacred Realms rundown. Holy crap! Hold on, hold on, hold on, We're how, like how two hours into this podcast, uh, one hour 49 minutes. This is the longest episode we've ever recorded. Yeah, Uh, the one with with Max and Melora might have been longer. No, we stopped recording at like an hour 40. Yeah, Yeah, this is a monster. Holy crap. Um, But it's just it just demands that sort of discussion. I think this will be I think this will be the longest season we have. It's not the longest by episode length by number of episodes, but I think the combined length of this season Will probably be the longest we've had. It's a monster. Like, it's just, it's incredible. Also, did you just say irregardless? No. I was about to say, if you say irregardless, I'll slap you because that's not a word. No, I don't. No, I don't think I said that. I know it's not a word, so I don't think I would have said it. I think you said regardless, but I heard irregardless, and that's a pet peeve of mine. No, no, it's not a word. Okay, that has been the Sacred Realms Rundown. We will, of course, be back next week with another installment of the Sacred Realms Rundown in which we cover Chapter 2 of Breath of the Wild, which is the journey to Kakariko Village. In the meantime, let's go ahead and get out of here for the week. Of course, if you have a question or an observation, or if you have a Zelda gameplay story, you can head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod, where master sword patrons and above can write into the show. This week, we got a wonderful anecdote from our friends over at Hyrule podcasters uh, on very short notice. We'll be putting these notices out in advance of episodes better from now on but um any anywho uh our our friends ben and pat over at hyrule podcasters uh let us uh in on a gameplay story of theirs which says i came out of the shrine of resurrection saw the cutscene, and then immediately turned around and tried to climb the first wall that i could i tried for so long to get up that wall and once i did i knew i was going to be in love with this game forever i think that's so emblematic of the way that People play this game, and I know the way that I played this game, which was that within the first few minutes, you're trying as hard as you can to just test its limits and find out how far you can make it with the resources that you have right up front. No, it's it's a fantastic uh, representation of the rest of the game, right? Like the rest of the game is all about how far can you go with what you've got? And if you can't quite get where you want, how can you get there? Elsewise, whether it's upgrading your stamina wheel or grabbing an ability from uh, one of your handy dandy champions. Um, also testing your limits in combat and like, can I beat that enemy? And if I can't, how can I approach it differently? This is the most versatile Zelda game that has ever been made. And just the breadth of things that you can do and the variety of ways in which you can do it. And yeah. like, that is, mm-hmm. that is a perfect story just right out of the gate of how, even at the very beginning of the game, you can test those limits. And this may sound just overly simplistic, but you can always try and tackle that cliff from another angle and you might make it up. It's just that kind of game. You Absolutely. Know? Yep. Cool. Just don't do it in the rain. No, never do it in the rain so thank you to our friends ben and pat at hyrule podcasters for writing in again just a reminder master sword patrons and above can write in gameplay stories and as long as we have at least one every week we will read it and if we have multiples then we'll read those so yeah just keep them coming we we we're not filtering here oh my gosh matt are you ready to get out of here Honestly, I'm not. Like, I have so much more to talk about, but that's why we have a whole season, Lyndon. That's why we have a whole season. We're going to be doing this from now until July, so... Uh, okay. Yeah, that's, that's a very long time. Oh, boy. But, I mean, there's just that much game to cover. Oh, it's absolutely. A, it's, it's massive, and it's so fun, and dear God, I just want to go play it now. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, the good news about having a Switch is that you can. I love the Switch. It's such a wonderful machine. Best... Video game console of all time, question mark, question mark with a heavy emphasis on On most likely. Yes, maybe probably the switch is awesome. Seriously, the switch is so great. Oh, Lordy. OK, let's get out of here because we're pushing two hours and we've got we'll have stuff to talk about next week. But but seriously, guys, thank you for sticking with us for this long. Seriously, this is going to be a fun season. It's going to be such a great time. And we we love that you're spending your time listening to us talk about it. Um, you know, if if there's something that you would like to hear us talk about in our playthrough of this game, then please hit us up on our social channels because there's a million different ways that this can be done and we want to hear everybody's input. So there you go. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, Sacred realms and Gatsby, the dog both say bye. bye. Well, we have a, like an outro, but I know, but he's, he's, he's wanted to talk. Okay. Well, Gatsby said goodbye, but Gatsby I, says bye. I still have to do the outro, but I like do I, the outro, but I respect his goodbye. Oh, he's, gosh, <laughs> cause, Cause he's cute. He's so cute. Except yeah. for when he like hits my face. Yeah, no, he's crazy. Oh my gosh. If you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to Patreon.com. You two are the worst. All right, put them on the ground. I have to do the outro. If you enjoyed today's show and would like a little extra Sacred Realms in your life, you can head over to Patreon.com slash Sacred Realms pod and become a patron. If you've got no rupees, it's not a problem. Five star Apple Podcast reviews are a great free way to support us, as are star reviews on Spotify. More reviews means that more people see our show. That makes us very happy, Hylians. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action. Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Breath of the Wild. Chapter two, covering the journey to Kakariko Village. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Breath of the Wild can be played only on the Nintendo Switch or the Wii U. But really, who's doing that? No, one. if you play Breath of the Wild on the Wii U, like who who are you? I'm disappointed in you. Unless that's the only console you have the availability to play it on. And then more power to you. But if you have the availability to get a Switch, you better do it and play Breath of the Wild on it. Yeah, seriously, play Breath of the Wild on a Switch. Like, dear lord. <laughs> Preferably it's, a swole It's just so much better. Yeah, that swole difference is real. In the meantime, may your hearts be full. May your arrows never miss. We will catch you guys next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game GameChops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences.